Right. We we prey on the dead. Uh, we're tall, skinny, old white people, men. Sorry, we're old white men. Uh, we have uh, no human compassion because how could we? Um, yeah, it, it's it's pretty wretched. And how do you say your last name? Woozy? Woozly? Woozly. Woozly. Are you getting a stupid amount of jokes about the fire? No, um, because it's one letter off. So that's the Woolsey fire. But my name is Woozly. And I know that they sound like they're probably completely the same. But um, there's actually like no branch. It doesn't connect. It's got a different root. (laughs) There was a Bishop Woolsey as well. So not that a lot of people made jokes. (laughs) <laughs> that I was a bishop, but... Just by listening to this episode's intro, your misconceptions about what and who a funeral director, mortician, undertaker, which may actually be used in British English, what they should be and who they should be, those misconceptions should be busted. Angela Woosley, a teacher for the University of Minnesota's Mortuary Science department and a funeral director she sat down with me to answer my questions and give us some insights to the much ruminated yet little experienced process of funerals and what to do with the body of your loved one the episode or this episode is longer than normal but i haven't received much feedback as to how long um, you prefer them so let me know if you want anyway um Thanks to Angela Woosley for giving me her time, and now I will cut off this chill-ass song and put on my synthy badass theme song. Just kidding, psych out. If you would like to leave ratings and reviews, this podcast is still kind of small, and those help people find it, so please do that if you can. Uh, iTunes has that option. Stitcher has that option. I'm sorry for that little plug. Again, thank you, Angela, for sitting down with me. Here is the theme song. to your eulogy the podcast where we talk to someone about their life so that we can talk to them about their death except for we may not do exactly that today because today i'm interviewing uh someone who is a expert on the subject so we may just be talking about death in general here are the titles for this person senior teaching specialist mortician and balmer funeral celebrant cream uh, crematory operator, funeral director, and and this is the one I'm interested in, certified IE nucleation technician. <laughs> my, my guest is Angela Woosley, um, and you are a uh, teacher at the University of Minnesota. Yes. For about nine years, you've been teaching the mortuary sciences. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do, do you have any titles I'm missing? Do you, do you have a doctorate in anything? No, I don't. I have a master's degree, but not a PhD. That is completely okay. I uh, think so. <laughs> yeah. 
one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about is if there is any um, contention between um, or any like stigma people have with the, I mean, people obviously have stigma with death in the mortuary sciences, but I wonder if in academia there's ever any, I was trying to think of a joke and it was like people make fun of proctologists, but they may avoid <laughs> mortuary <laughs> science people. That's an interesting connection. Yeah. Um, so what one of the things that makes our program here at the U um, unusual is that it's um, part of the medical school and most mortuary science programs aren't connected with a medical school. Uh, they aren't. Um, there also aren't generally a bachelor's program, but um, ours has been a part of the medical school since uh, for 110 years. And so, yeah, I don't know that there's necessarily a stigma, but a lot of people don't know that this program even exists at the U, that that they teach here, they've been here for decades, and they're like, we have a mortuary science program, mm. um, but also that it's part of the academic health center and part of the medical school that's unusual to them okay um is are there any misconceptions or okay i wanted to start this interview just saying like what questions do you get asked too often (laughs) that you're oh i don't think there's any question that i get too often um i really like answering questions about funeral service i'm i'm really passionate about it but there are a lot of misconceptions um Well, I mean, legally, a lot of people think that every single person who dies has to be embalmed. A lot of people think that uh, there's a state law or federal law that requires a vault or outer burial container at the cemetery. And none of those things are true. Um, A lot of people have burning questions about the embalming process that they don't feel comfortable asking. um, And other things, other questions. A lot of people just have misconceptions about what a funeral director is going to be like. A lot of people are surprised that I'm a lady and I'm not morose and sad all the time (laughs) and that um, uh, I tend to enjoy life, (laughs) Um, uh, that I have a sense of humor. Um, Yeah, Yeah. that sort of thing. Um, Let's jump back to my my very, very first question. Sure. I, in nucleation... (laughs) Yes. What is that? So that was simply something that I was certified in while I was actually going through this program as a student. Um, The Minnesota Lions Eye Bank came in and did a training with us where we learned how to do whole globe enucleation of an eye. Um, So when someone is an eye donor at that time, and they don't do this anymore usually, at that time, they would remove the whole eye for donation. And now they generally remove just the corneal tissue. Um, So we learned how to do this over the course of one day um, on like a dummy head that had an eyeball with these rubber straps to simulate the muscle tissue around the eye. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've never actually used that certification. I'm I'm sorry to say. And so it's the process of removing the eye t- mm-hmm. to so that it can be donated or whatever. Correct. Yeah. So it could be used for for a donor to help restore sight. Wow. Um, I have a joke that's similar to that. It is. 
I ha- my dentist and optometrist are the same person, which is convenient, except for they get confused and sometimes start filling in my ocular cavities. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that would be the wrong kind of cavity. One, I was... I don't do a ton of research on my interviewees because mm. it's actually kind of hard to do in, uh, research on um, just, you know, normal people. But I may have been on your LinkedIn bio that said that you're a volunteer to read books for people who are blind. Yeah. Uh, for several years, I volunteered at the uh, state services for the blind. Did you uh, get into that just because you saw that they needed help or do you have a personal connection with people who are blind? Um, well, since I started there, I do have friends who are blind, but at the time that I started volunteering, I was just looking for a volunteer opportunity. Um, and I passed by their booth at the Minnesota state fair and I, I have a generally non grading voice. So I thought, and I can pronounce big words. So I thought that that would be a good fit. Yeah. (laughs) So, Yeah, it was really nice. Um, It was a really great volunteer opportunity because I also got to learn at the same time. Um, I'd be reading, um, one one day I'd be reading a a pharmacy textbook and the next day I'd be reading um, a new translation of the Iliad and the next day I'd be reading a math textbook. It was really a huge variety of things. It was interesting. That's so cool. I I was just... uh Ursula Le Guin, the author, just died. Yeah. And she, with someone else, did a new translation of, I think it was The Art of War. Nope. It was actually Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, a book about the way and the power of the way. I didn't know that. Maybe not. Maybe it's... But but the what was interesting is it was the first translation where it was translated to have the pronoun to be female. Mm-hmm. Um, and it never was a male pronoun. It was like a neutral one, but it always would get translated as the male one because that's what it was assumed. But hmm. I just thought that was interesting because, I don't know. She's, yeah. I, I, th- I think she's cool. And then I learned that and I was like, man, <laughs> this lady just keeps getting cooler. <laughs> I agree. I'm curious about ooh, so much. Um, let's talk about the law for a moment. Sure. Um, there's a federal law that says funeral homes or crematories, is that right? Mm -hmm. Crematories? Crematories. Um, they, they're required to inform you that you may use an alternative container and to make such containers available. For cremation. Okay. It's the way that's written. It sounds like there was a an abuse happening before, where like people would get pressured into buying like expensive urns. Do you know if that's so? That law um, is part of the Federal Trade Commission's funeral rule, and that um, law came into effect in the early '80s, and it came about as a long-term result of um, uh, Jessica Mitford's seminal work, uh, The American Way of Death. And she wrote that in the 60s and was exposing a lot of corruption and um, misinformation that was taking place among funeral homes, not just with cremation consumers, but um, there were reports of 
Well, for instance, telling families that every single person needed to be embalmed, telling families that a law required the use of an outer burial container or vault at a cemetery, not showing families what their prices were before they signed a contract for those prices, Um, changing prices based on what the family was driving to the funeral home. Or uh, so like if they came in, if they drove they, up in a, in a Cadillac, quick, Johnny, go run, change the price cards in the caskets. <laughs> right. Really, really gross, gross violations. Gross. So um, thanks to Jessica Mitford's work and research exposing some of these problems, um, the Federal Trade Commission got involved and they came up with a sweeping regulation that covers not only um, that you don't need a casket to be cremated, um, that you don't need an outer barrel container to be buried, but that you have to be given a general price list from the funeral home that conforms to very specific Mm. standards as soon as you start talking about anything that a funeral director can provide to you anything so and you can and they have to make it available to you in person even if you just look at them sideways basically that if you walk into a funeral home and say i would like your general price list they have to give it to you if you call a funeral home and say i want to know how much it costs for a simple cremation they have to tell you in detail they can't sidestep those questions or say well i don't have someone available right now there's no getting around it they'd be breaking a federal law and the fines are very steep mm. for breaking it And it's kind of a shame that we have to have a law like that. But I'm really grateful that that law is in place. Another law that I, and and this is just because I think this is a silly or funny idea. I read that you can have a private cemetery. Um, You need to get it like surveyed um, and you have to have like a marker, have it like documented. But the thing is, is you, that land isn't taxed. I, th- I think something like that. Um, mm. And so <laughs> I was just wondering if there was ever weird tax um, schemes where people like turn their backyards into cemeteries. You know, I I haven't heard of anything like that. Um, I don't I don't know of a circumstance where someone has done that. But it is true that you could turn most any piece of land into a cemetery. And as soon as someone is buried in a place that place is now a cemetery (laughs) Um, so that's why you can't just bury someone in your backyard um, because it has to be surveyed and platted and um, has to conform and and have permanent records that are in place Um, should we talk about the um, the sensational stuff i think people are really curious about like um dead bodies <laughs> sure i mean i'd i'd like to bust some myths about dead bodies being sensational since our own human living bodies aren't sensational i i, I my most sensational question is mm-hmm. and i i assume the family has control over this but generally what is the cutoff for when people start to decide to have like a closed casket Mm. Well, there's no legal uh, requirement for whether or not a casket needs to be closed or not. But um, generally, that's going to be something that would be recommended by a funeral director, Mm -hmm. um, depending on 
the state of the person who's died. Um, so a person in Minnesota would generally be buried, cremated, uh, or embalmed within three days. Um, there can be some allowances if you have a very uh, refrigerated room to keep that person in or other other ex- exceptions. But um, if the person hasn't has been dead for, say, a week or more, um, depending on the circumstances of their death and where they were, how they fell when they died, um, we try to do what we can in terms of preparing and restoring that person to um, some peaceful likeness of who the person was. But if there's been excessive trauma in the case of a violent death, or if there's been an excessive amount of time that's passed, um, we, we may encourage the family, maybe may, may discourage the family from seeing that dead person. And it's not, um, it's not something that funeral directors tend to take lightly mm-hmm. um, because we, we research tells us that people do better when they've spent time with a dead person, that it helps us um, understand that a person is truly gone um, to spend time with that person after they've died. And it's really powerful um, to spend time in the presence of the dead. So it's really not something that we would say, well, you know, this person is a little green around the ears. Let's just close the casket. I don't think the family should see them. It really should be something that I would be causing further trauma to this family to subject them to that. And even in those cases, I want to be sure that they can have some concrete goodbye. Um, Once I helped a family um, where I didn't think that the decedent's face could be peacefully shown if if that's the right word it's not um but i we still had the person in our chapel and their hands were uncovered so that the family could come in and hold his hands and know that this was him Mm -hmm. even if they weren't looking at his face due to the trauma that's that's great i my experience was um like seeing the body um was instantaneously helped me understand what was happening. And I have a friend who died young and we had about a, I hadn't seen him for a year or so. We were kind of moving apart anyway. And to this day, I don't think I really have accepted his death. Um, yeah, and, it, it, and so I, I, yeah, I do wonder that calculation of, mm-hmm. you know, should, or at least, yeah, like <laughs> what, I don't know. I know it's 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 um one one of the many um, calculations that you have you have yeah. to make. I tend to think of it in terms of something that our forebrain understands and our hindbrain doesn't. That intellectually, I can say, I understand this person is dead because someone told me this person is dead, and certainly I can rationally and logically understand that. But my lizard brain hasn't gotten the memo you know there's something in that in that hind brain that that primitive brain that we that needs to see that needs to feel that needs to touch that needs that confirmation and I think it's really important um when my dad died uh 
my brother and I were in the hospital with him, and um, the funeral director the next day asked us if we wanted to see him one more time before the cremation. And I said yes, because I knew it really helps. <laughs> and But I'd never seen my dead dad in a funeral chapel, you know. Um, and so my brother and I went into the funeral home later. I'm not, I can't even remember if it was that same day or the next day to see him. And we turned the corner and my brother broke down and he said, Angela, I had no idea what you do for families. And it was just super powerful to see our dad. You know, we'd seen him dead, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as seeing him dead and at peace and away from... Because when you're... Hmm. Let me collect myself and say this a little better. When you see someone dead in a hospital or a nursing home bed, we expect those places to be places where people get better, where they recover, where they live, where they continue. Nobody that you see in a funeral home horizontal, you expect to stand up. Does that make any sense? Like the the change of setting was really powerful and important in that case. How wonderful to to have that moment with your brother and like, um, vindicated isn't the right word, but like have a... Have have it understood, the the value of what you do. Um, it was really affirming. Yeah, yeah, it felt good. <laughs> yeah, it was hard, but um, but it was really good. Do you think people assume that you aren't affected by grief as much because of your proximity to other people's grief? I I would guess I would guess that people think that um, that that were numb to it. And I'm not numb to anyone's grief. I, I can, I don't know, I, I, even if you see someone every single day who's grieving, they're grieving a different loss. And it's really important, I think, to remember that every single loss is different, every single life is different, and meeting these families on their own terms in their own way is imperative. Um, and it doesn't mean that we're exempt. We don't get a pass on our own grief. Yeah. Yeah. I once listened to an interview with this um, this guy who was a, a trucker, a mover. He would move. Uh, I think he wrote a book mm-hmm. um, about it. And because he was always with everyone's, like moving everyone's belongings or, you know, taking belongings out of people's houses after um, they've died, he said he kind of has like a Zen-like mm. <laughs> approach for the the immateri- immateriality of life. Um, mm. ha- has that occurred for you in any way? I don't think that life is immaterial. If you mean unimportant or, you know, quotidian. I don't know. I think that life is really important. I think that seeing seeing way too many people dead who had no business being dead, you know, Mm -hmm. in a a just world, uh, means that every day that I have being alive and every day that the people I love have being alive is a gift. I know it's super corny. It's very cliche, but I just don't take any day 
for granted. I don't take any day with my friends and family for granted. It means so much that that they're with me. And I know that any of us could be gone tomorrow. Any of us. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, it's... I have to live in the present. Mm-hmm. Ha- you know? Yeah. It helps me it helps me not dwell on the past and I do certainly plan for the future. I don't <laughs> I don't spend like there's no tomorrow or, you know, live exactly like there's no tomorrow, but I I don't I don't count on it and I don't um I I try really hard to stay in the present moment. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's that's great. On my on my way walking here, I saw, um, I saw some bicycles at, at a bike rack, mm-hmm. and um, maybe this isn't as profound. Maybe I just think it's profound because it, it happened like you know fifteen minutes ago or whatever. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I saw the bikes, and there's like some rusty kind of shitty bikes, you know, sideways, barely hanging on. There's a fancy bike, probably like you know some kick-ass med student that's like you know got everything figured out <laughs> and I'll, i looked at the bike rack and i was like oh that's life you know we're the bikes mm-hmm. like we start and then we get to where we're going mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter how well you do it um because you know you get to that bike rack and that that's your life and mm-hmm. it it happened the way that it did mm-hmm. i think that's a good analogy and yeah, every everyone arrives at our destination in a different state. I think is another piece of that. You know that um, some of us end up uh, worn out, ground down um, after a long illness or decline, and some of us are just gone in an instant. When I was thinking of like a really shitty bicycle, I was like, it made me think of like. The family dynamics of, you know, because not everyone who dies is a great person. (laughs) And there's a lot of um, strong, intense feelings that come with having to, uh, you know, deal with that. And sometimes it's unresolved. Sometimes. um, um, Do do you have any, do you use any certain examples or like personal experience to um, help people figure out how to navigate what um, people's emotions when people are so... You know, maybe they're fighting about how much to mm-hmm. spend, um, where the body's going to go. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that funeral directors deal with really frequently is uh, displaced anger. Um, that it's easy to be angry at a funeral director, uh, even though I didn't cause a death and I didn't cause family strife. I am a stranger and I'm invading their space and I'm asking them intimate questions and having to be intimately involved in a really tough decision. So it's very common uh, for families to lash out at a funeral director or triangulate them, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, when really they're mad about the death Um, or why, why their sister didn't show up for arrangements or you know, said something hurtful on the phone. Um, so it, that's one aspect is letting, 
letting that anger roll past you and not through you mm-hmm. and making sure that you're not taking on someone's psychic energy and not getting abused, but understanding where this is coming from and maybe giving them a pass today on that. Yeah. <laughs> but another piece in terms of arguing amongst themselves or having conflict, that's that's increasingly uh, true that families have conflict or not or, or are not sure how to deal with one another and deal with the death. So we do um, uh, we do try to make peace and include everyone's voices without being a true mediator. I don't want to get on one person's side or another what I really want everyone to see, I want to be able to find some consensus and I want everyone to be on the same page. And that page is let's do the right thing for the person who died and trying to, to guide them back to what's the best way to remember this person and what's the best way to come together for this person's sake uh, is kind of the main direction to move people in. Yeah. It certainly does sound like a thankless job. Um, oh, no. It's it's not thankless at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to give that impression at all. Uh, after the funeral, once we've gotten through everything, uh, you, 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 know, you understand what a deep, concrete impact and difference you've made in people's lives. And I have people I've known for 48 hours hug me harder than a long lost relative uh, at the conclusion of a funeral service. They may not be thanking me the day of arrangements when we're hashing out all the details. Uh, and not every family is going to hug me like that because some people just aren't huggers and that's okay. But um, but it's not a thankless job. I definitely don't want to make it make that impression oh that that's wonderful um and and i don't think you were i was mostly i just have like an image of like um movies and like how people uh depict funeral homes and stuff and i was (laughs) terribly (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. how poorly is is it just because they make them look like people you know everyone that works in funeral homes are just kind of these you know vampire-ish right right we we prey on the dead uh we're Tall, skinny, old white people, men, sorry, we're old white men. Uh, we have uh, no human compassion because how could we? Um, yeah, it, it's it's pretty wretched. Uh, I actually use the clip from The Big Lebowski, if you've seen that movie. Yeah. Yeah, uh, where after, um, after Donnie dies, spoiler, on a 20... 20- five-year-old movie <laughs> uh, Donnie dies <laughs> um, Walter and the dude end up meeting with the funeral director who just speaks like an alien to them um, and they ask you know they're asking for is this your cheapest urn and he said he crosses his fingers like Mr. Burns and says <laughs> it is our most modestly priced receptacle I'm like who <laughs> come on you're not a human. So and that's, that's really, that's what people expect. That's, that's what they expect to be walking into when they walk into a funeral home. How sad is that? Yeah. That, 
they know it's the worst day of their lives. They know they're going through a crisis. And now they not only have to bury somebody, but they have to work up the gumption to walk into a building and be met with an alien. I'm so glad that funeral directors every day are breaking those myths and stereotypes and actually helping people. Um, maybe maybe that's why we help so much, because uh, they're shocked that we could. I don't know. <laughs> Were there any particular myths you wanted to bust? Do you think people think embalming is like, um, well, yeah. Do you have any? Um, well, what what do you think is what what do you think happens during embalming? Um, a replacement of uh, fluid with uh, formaldehyde. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray. Uh, do you think that a person has to be um, bled out like a? pig to do that I think I did (laughs) yeah a lot of people uh, wonder if we cut a person's ankles and let them bleed out that way I picture like when you when you have to like donate blood or something you have one sure going in and one coming out sure that's that's much that's much closer to the truth we actually generally uh, what's really frequent is using the uh, common carotid so near the neck so we'd make a an incision by the clavicle um but yeah essentially we're accessing an artery and a vein that are in the same general neighborhood and uh because we're because the the body is a circuit um blood uh, blood comes out as that preservative fluid that includes formaldehyde goes Mm -hmm. in and so it just kind of naturally gets replaced it's, yeah. it's pretty straightforward. It requires a, a, an incision of about two or three inches. Oh, shoot. Well, I just lost my thought. Sorry. Okay. Um, so with me personally, the way I think of um, uh, dead bodies, um, what term do you use for the dead body, the person, deceased? The person, the deceased, your dad, whatever yeah, it might yeah. be. Uh, I, I try really hard not to say body, yeah. unless I'm referring to this person's body. Like, on your dad's body, there is a, this part where there's a bruise, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think I say body a lot because with me, I just the way I experience it, I just have a, such a big distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I saw my, my grandpa's dead body and I was able to touch him, mm-hmm. um, part of that click when I realized he was gone is like, it was like nothing like he wasn't there at all for me right um and that's why um do, do you feel like that or what what's your um understanding of of the you know the process and and the the transformation so to speak hmm you know i i tend to reserve my judgment about that process or that transformation i don't know it's it's okay. a giant mystery to me. Yeah, of course. I, I didn't right. think that th- yeah. that you would be kind of compromising yourself if, right. if you said um, gave an opinion on that. But at the same time, when I'm working with a decedent, it helps me. Like it it helps some funeral directors to um, disengage a bit and treat this dead person like a body, like mm-hmm. like a like an other. And it helps me to humanize them. So 
when I was a practicing funeral director, it was kind of common for me to talk to people while I embalmed them because it helped me stay connected with the fact that this is someone's mom or grandma. And I have this honor, this amazing honor of being the last person to care for them, the last person to comb their hair, the last person to dress them. And if I disconnected from that in order to be more clinical about it, that didn't help me. That I think that damaged my relationship with mm-hmm. the deceased. So whether they whether they're conscious of that, whether they're with us, regardless, I'm going to treat them. I'm going to treat them the way that they'd be proud if they were looking on. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's that's I I 100% agree with, it and I think that's a beautiful thing. I have, um, and this may be a bad analogy, <laughs> um, but I didn't read the Maria Kando, the Japanese uh, art of tidying up lady. Um, oh, <laughs> but one of her bits, and I think this is actually kind of related to like Japanese animism or something, is about um, just recognizing all of your, you know, your space and everything that you have as, you know, being actual things. Mm-hmm. And I find myself like I talk to, um, you know, like the objects I use, sure, and I, um, you know, like <laughs> call my cat like hello friend, sure, <laughs> um, but. I don't want to be saying that, you know, um, deceased people and bodies aren't, um, whatever. I don't need to coach my words. People know that I don't, don't mean anything <laughs> bad about that. Sure. Um, I but I think what I'm trying to say is like, I really agree in what you said. It, it, you hold your humanity in, in your head, like in, in all parts of your brain. Sure. And you can use your frontal lobe to help train the back of your head mm-hmm. and help remind yourself that, you know, how, how to respect things. What um, what do you want people to know that you think they may not know about um, mortuary sciences? I I want people to know what kind of options they have for their own services and when they're arranging services for others. Um, it's a lot of funeral a lot about funeral service can make it feel very obscure and um, difficult to learn what options you have Mm -hmm. and so and we and we also don't spend a whole lot of time on good days researching funeral options because we'd rather do something pleasant anything anything different right so because we tend to avoid conversations about death and funerals we also end up being less informed consumers and I don't I want families to feel confident and empowered that they understand the choices and they understand the value of remembering a person. Um, and I, I want them to know what options they have. So everything from cremation to green cremation or alkaline hydrolysis, um, green burial, uh, whether or not they want to be uh, seen after death, uh, whether or not they want to be embalmed after death, whether or not they want to have a service at a church, at a funeral home, at a park, in a garden, at the Walker Arts Center. Like that you can, there's no prescribed anything uh, that people can remember and have something meaningful happen regardless. 
that what's important is coming together, getting support from people you care about and your grief and giving them support. Because, well, another cliche is grief shared is grief lessened. That coming together helps. It really helps. Um, trying to do it on your own or trying to do something simple and quick, you, it's, shortcuts don't exist in grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I want people to know. Shortcuts don't exist. So do something meaningful and powerful and awesome. And if you don't get it right the first time, try it again, right? Like it's not like you blew your shot to have, to remember this great person. Try again, do, an, do another one. Well, um, thank you so much for giving me your time and speaking with me. Um, this has been your eulogy. My name is Matthew Schneeman. I edited and did the music for this episode. Uh, any questions, you can contact me at youreulogymail at gmail.com. Um, if you so like, you can write or leave a rating and review um, on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And that's that. Thank you very much. <laughs>